Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here on Slate's DC Recording Studio. Joining me here is a new addition to our Audiobook Club rotation of critics, Slate staff writer Jamel Bowie. Hey, Jamel. Hello. And joining us from New Haven is Slate senior editor Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hey, Dan. I'm excited that we're critics. Somehow I hadn't thought of that. What a good appellation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just going to call you guys cranks and gadabouts, but I decided critics was nicer. I think I want to be a crank. Okay. <laughs> Joining us is <laughs> Slate staff crank Jamel Bowie. As always with the Audiobook Club, we will be spoiling, of course, plot details that happen in this very plot-filled book. So if you are a person who cares about being spoiled, read the book first and then come back and listen to us. We'll wait. Just put us on pause. We'll be right here. We're not going anywhere. But, you know, if you don't care about spoilers or you just want to hear more about this book, listen on. Today we are going to talk in this big overstuffed novel about Nigerians coming to America and England and then returning home. We'll talk about a lot of things because there's a lot of things going on. We'll talk about, amid other things, the relationship at the center of this book between Ifemele and Obinze. We'll talk about the novel's views on race in America and the way that it handles it, about the return of both of those characters to Nigeria at the book's end. I also want to talk a little bit about blogging and how pieces of a blog fit in a novel and plus plenty of other stuff. But let's start, if you guys don't mind, with this star-crossed couple at the center of the book. The book is a comedy of manners and it's also an immigrant drama and it's also sort of a portrait of the new Nigeria but it seems to me that people are especially responding to this book, and I definitely especially responded to this book as like a very 
somewhat like a somewhat simple love story of lovers separated by distance and time and emotion and then brought back together. But did you guys think that that love story held for you? Was that what ended up driving you through the book? Or did you find that sort of beside the point? Emily, what did you think about those lovers at the center of it? I sort of hate to start here because I really liked this book. And this is the part of the book that I didn't think worked as well. So if Amelu and Obinze meet as teenagers and then they go to college together, and I thought the development of their relationship in Nigeria as young people was lovely and real and kind of detailed and practical in this great way. So one example is that before they have sex for the first time, Obinze's mother tells them to come to her when they have sex so that she can make sure that they're using birth control. And Obinze, of course, is horrified that his mother is intruding in this way. It's really kind of lovely and hilarious. However, there's a moment in the book after Ifemelu immigrates to the United States for a time in which she stops communicating with Obinze. And I found that just so frustrating. I have a general bias against plot twists where someone just opts out of a relationship and doesn't explain, just kind of drops someone else in midair. I find it very, very frustrating, those kind of missed signals. And this one seemed completely unrealistic to me. I just didn't buy it. I mean, she has her reasons. We can talk about it. But it really bothered me. And then it bothered me that Obinze essentially takes her back after she returns to Nigeria without giving her a hard enough time. And there was a way in which Ifemelu's relationships with men in this book seemed to me to come too easily. It was like she was flitting along. She was this perfect woman who everyone wanted to sleep with. Everyone wanted her to be their girlfriend. And though I loved her character in many ways, the ease of all of that, the way in which she took for granted all the male adulation, just kind of bugged me. Maybe I'm just jealous. You're probably just a hater. Yeah. So I want to hear what Jamel has to say, too, and then I have some thoughts as well. But Jamel, what did you think of these guys? No, I, I don't disagree with the Emily's general take. I think the development of the relationship I really enjoyed, it sort of – it rung very true about how sort of teenagers approach things. I think I would have preferred a narrative in which that relationship goes by the wayside like a bit more naturally than an abrupt stop. And later on in life when they reconnect – that their teenage love and fire isn't just immediately rekindled because that just doesn't seem like it would happen in real life. There's a 13, 14 year gap between yeah. between them leaving and them getting back together. And within that gap is uh, Ifemelu, you know, dropping Obinze and essentially not communicating with them in any, in any way whatsoever. And so the fact that, they essentially look at each other and immediately rekindle their former love. I wanted to like it because I also really like this book, but it just didn't really ring true to me. So I didn't really mind the, like the immediate rekindling. I feel like that's sort of the bargain you make when you are buying into a book like this, that true. if you are buying into the notion of star-crossed lovers, as you have to, to believe in them, that when they get back together, I expected and wanted them to have that kind of fire. Like, I don't know that I would have wanted like 50 pages of him like giving her a hard time about <laughs> what a jerk she was, even though she was a jerk. And like, she definitely has reasons. And the, the stated reason she gives him and the moment at which she shuts down and stops communicating with him is sort of her lowest ebb in the years after she first comes to America when she can't find a job. No one will hire her. She's trying to get a job uh, like on a fake work permit. Everything she applies for, she gets turned down for, and she ends up for 100 bucks, basically like jacking off a tennis coach in a totally unbelievably gross scenario. 
And that is when she like shuts down and sinks into a very deep depression and then can no longer face talking to him about it. And then the silence stretches for years and years and years and she can't deal with it. And that for a while, actually, Emily struck me as like not even as maddening as I would often find that in some novels. When I got upset by their separation was that totally weird scene when she has gotten back to Nigeria and they've even like emailed and stuff and they're clearly like back into each other, but she gets back to Nigeria. And then for like no reason other than that, the novel can't quite have them get together yet. She's mm-hmm. like, Oh, I don't want to see him again until I lose some weight. Yeah. And that like drove me insane. Like I was like, I've given up at least for now on the notion of these two as the perfect person for each other. If she won't even run to see him after 14 years when she's clearly still in love with him. Like, so that drove me slightly crazy, but I did really like them as a couple, especially the way that couple developed. There's this really nice line that I wanted to reference. It's actually when they first meet and she talks about something that she feels for the first time when they meet at this party, it's on page 73 of the book. And, it's the first time he puts an arm around her, and it says, She rested her head against his and felt, for the first time, what she would often feel with him, a self-affection. He made her like herself. With him, she was at ease. Her skin felt as though it was her right size. I thought that, that was a very nice evocation of what falling in love can feel like and what being in love with someone who really feels well-matched to you can feel like. It's not just that they're just right for you and that you love them. It's that you also love yourself more when you are with them. And I really like that a lot. Yeah, that's really nicely said. And I agree with you. I mean, that's part of why I like the development of their relationship so much. Can we go back for just a minute, though, to this very low ebb as you put it well, and this kind of forced act of prostitution. So what bothered me about Ifemelu's decision to cut off communication with Obinze because of her deep sense of shame and self-loathing was that she is such a strong, vibrant female character. I mean, she's really a model for female protagonists in the sense that she's funny, she's comfortable with herself, she's edgy, she's willing to challenge basically everyone around her, and she's strong. So I just didn't like the idea and also didn't buy the idea that this one awful experience would then utterly turn her into such a puddle on the floor that she had to stop communicating with her devoted, beloved boyfriend, sabotaging herself and also really hurting him. You know, I don't mean to diminish the damage that can be done by being in a terrible situation like that. But it is one terrible moment in essentially a good life. And I just didn't believe it would have that impact on her. Well, doesn't it come sort of after a quite a while of just not being able to find work? Like it's sort of yes. the last resort. So she's rejected from jobs. She's I feel like she's fired from a job. Maybe I'm confusing her story with Obinze's in, in London. No, you're right. She's at this low point, like Dan said. And I think also one of the things to point out is the novel does an amazing job of describing what it's like to be an immigrant who's sort of on the other side of legal work. She's using other people's papers. Obinze has to do the same thing in London, just trying to be a normal citizen and work and make it like everyone else can feel totally out of reach in this way that is incredible incredibly hard to deal with. Emily, I feel like there's something missing, though, from your description of what happens to her, which is that I didn't get the impression that the tennis coach encounter caused her to shut down. I got the impression that the tennis coach encounter was the last straw that caused her to sink into an actual clinical depression. Like, I think part of the point of this novel, and it's not one that Didiche really dwells on a lot, that there are several points during the novel where she really is, like, 
diagnosably clinically depressed. Like right after that event, here's how the novel describes her. It's on page 192. She woke up torpid each morning, slowed by sadness, frightened by the endless stretch of day that lay ahead. Everything had thickened. She was swallowed, lost in a viscous haze, shrouded in a soup of nothingness. Between her and what she should feel, there was a gap. To me, what this I thought was one of the stronger parts of the book because it's a very effective description of what depression feels like. And so I agree with you that that's why it made me so mad when she got back to Nigeria and she didn't call him because she was Mm -hmm. not in the grip of depression then. She was like 14 years after that depression. She was a successful woman. She was really strong in that moment. And so it was like completely bullshit that she would not call him when she arrived back in Lagos. But this moment... In that moment, I totally bought that someone in the grips of depression would completely shut down because that is what happens. And, and, and you know, there's like an entire alternate version of her that never becomes the strong person she would become because Janika never shows up at her door and she never gets a job with Kimberly and the family taking care of that kid. That is what pulls her out of it, essentially. And right. she almost literally has to be pulled out of the apartment for that to happen. So I don't know. I bought that. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, maybe it's that then she recovers from the depression and yet this separation from Obinze continues for so long rather than her realizing as she emerges from her grief that she's done this terrible thing to him. Yeah. I was upset for him. Yeah, no, me too. For her. So we talked a little bit about her experience when she first comes to America. And that's, you know, it's a, a not untold story, the story of immigrants coming to America and struggling and eventually finding jobs. What did you guys think of Obinze's story in London? It's shorter than hers, and the novel doesn't focus on him as much. There's a line drawn in the book that sort of distinguishes these middle-class Nigerians who come to different first-world countries to broaden their opportunities, you know, as opposed to the kind of immigration that so many Western people in this book talk about, about people fleeing from war-torn lands. And there's that great section at this big party when Obinze is like completely closes himself off to this dumb woman who can't stop talking about how things in Africa must be so terrible because of the wars. And he's like, people understand, he says, the kind of poverty that crushes human souls, but they don't understand the need to escape from, he says, the ominous lethargy of choicelessness, which is what he and Ifemelu both feel like they have in Nigeria and what they're trying to get away from. Did that section in England work for you? And did you buy that sort of differentiation of immigrant experiences, Jamel? It worked for me in large part because I successfully bought into Obinze as this very thoughtful, very ambitious guy who I think was not anticipating the extent to which London as an experience could crush his soul. Right. Because he's totally like together. He's like the most together guy in Lagos. Yeah, and he's the son of a college professor who took very good care of him. So he's been raised to expect good things for himself. And he also seems like someone who recognizes that you would have to struggle. Like it's not that the mere existence of struggle has pushed him back. It's that he had to degrade himself. And the scene that sticks out to me is when he's cleaning the bathrooms in the office and he comes to the one toilet that just has a mound oh, of, of carefully arranged shit on it, <laughs> which I laughed at. Right. And he sees that and he thinks to himself, I can't. <laughs> I'm a college educated person. Like I, This I'm, is not me. Right, this is not me. Right. And what's significant is that he can't. At no point after that moment, he quits his job, but at no point after that moment can he get to a place where he can be him. He's Vincent working the construction yard and having to put up with like pretty egregious racism from his coworkers, and it wears him down. And I, I came away from that with a tremendous amount of sympathy for him, and I hope that he would get out of there. I was happy. I was actually a little happy when he got deported. 
Right. Yeah. Because that was another restart for him and a way for him to actually live up to the potential that he does actually have. One of the best things about this novel is that you know from the beginning that the arc is going to send both Ifemelo and Obinze back to Nigeria. And I think that I read a good essay about this book by Catherine Schultz in New York Magazine where she pointed out that that part is unusual. We're used to the immigrant novel, the struggle in America, the struggle, you know, the East meets West. And usually it's the idea of having to get through adversity and hardship, and then, you know, you end up making good in this new country. But in this book, these characters are going back home. That's their trajectory. It's actually Nigeria where they can be their best selves. And there was something really freeing about that idea, I think, both in the writing of it and in the reading. Yeah, I agree. And they take different paths. Obinze gets deported, but then lands on his feet, essentially, and becomes, you know, a big man of Nigeria. And if Amelu goes back because she wants to, because she has achieved success at a probably almost unexpected level in America, she's achieved success of a type she couldn't have imagined when she first came there. But yet she decides that, that she is a Nigerian, and that is where she feels she needs to be. And I think you're right that it's there in the writing, too. I mean, I found that Nigeria sections of this book really fascinating and vividly written and interesting and unexpected in a way that I think I didn't always with a lot of the American sections. And maybe it's just because the, the world that it was painting in America was more familiar to me. I mean, certainly it's because it's the world being painted in America, even though Adichie is telling truths about race. It was st it's still a more familiar world to me than the world of Nigeria. But, you know, just this sense of Nigeria, as Auntie Uju calls it, an ass-licking economy, which I thought was totally fascinating. And that amazing section where when Obinze has become successful and he gets so frustrated because everyone keeps calling him humble. And the reason they call him humble is because he's not an asshole like every other rich person. Like he just treats people like normal human beings. But then he gets praised for being humble. Like I thought a lot of that stuff was really, really interesting. One of my favorite sections actually, which I'm going to read really quickly, is when Ifemelu has returned to Nigeria and she's starting to figure out how to like be Nigerian again after 14 years of being American. And she's out with her friend Rani Nundo. I can't – that's a name I definitely garbled, but – Ronnie, let's call her. I believe she calls her. And they're visiting a huge house where Ifemelu is getting a job. And Ifemelu calls it a totally ugly, monstrous house with two gigantic angels guarding the gate and a fountain in the front yard. And her friend says, ugly? What are you talking about? The house is beautiful. Not to me, Ifemelu said. And yet she had once found houses like that beautiful. But here she was now, disliking it, with the haughty confidence of a person who recognized kitsch. Her generator is as big as my flat, and it is completely noiseless, Ranya Nudo said. Did you notice the generator house on the side of the gate? If Amelu had not noticed, and it piqued her, this was what a true Lagosian should have noticed, the generator house, the generator size. I love this moment of like, oh, this is what living in Lagos and being a native means, is that you see even houses completely differently than you did when you were American. Yeah, it's a great observation. And she's not a romantic about Nigeria either. I mean, you see all this corruption and frustration. And yet she and Obinze are there in some small way trying to make it a better country and city or just that's where they want to lead their lives because we now live in this world that's cosmopolitan and connected enough that you can be from a messed up country and still love it enough to stay there and not then make yourself completely immersed only in that place. You can still connect with the rest of the world as if Amelu does through the blog she starts. And I think it's also a kind of messed upness that they're both more comfortable with. I mean, 
you know, in, in America, Ifemelu, although she made her name writing about a race, it was clear that, like, I mean, she described it as something that fascinates her. And it's something that, like, really wore on her. And I think in some part, going back to Nigeria, was using her right of escape, right? Like, she she can leave America and go back home and not have to think about race anymore. And that's what she chose to do. And in the same way, Obinze in London, I think he was not able or uncomfortable with thinking in, in class terms and realizing that he could, I mean, he was deported. But... Nigeria may be messed up in so many ways that the social mores around wealth may be distorted and wrong, but it was a kind of wrongness that he was familiar with and could navigate in a way that I'm not sure he could navigate sort of the the entrenched classism and hierarchy of British society. What about the Americana as the title? And there's an interview that Adichie did with Parl Segal in Tin House where she described it as... So a regional term used in Southeast Nigeria, where she's from, she says it's a way of referring to a person who affects Americanness in speech or manner, or a person who has actually become genuinely Americanized and insists upon that Americanness. She says it's not polite, but it's not exactly derogatory either. It's sort of playful, and it's used in a playful way to describe characters in this book who, like Ifemelu, who have come back and are sort of readjusting to Nigerian life. But did you guys get a sense that... If Amelu was a true Americana, or did you get a sense of what a true Americana really was? Well, there's a great description on page 65 of a schoolmate of Ifemelu's who goes on a short trip to America and she comes back, quote, pretending she no longer understood Yoruba, adding a slurred R to every English word she spoke. <laughs> right. And so teenagers great... do that. Right. That makes sense yeah. for a teenager. But there's also a sense of an adult thing where it has truly transformed you in some way. and. The people who you're returning to in Nigeria want to point that out even as they welcome you back. To me, this is the title of the book and this idea is that when you immigrate to another country, that act of immigration becomes the defining experience of your life. The way people look at you and the way you look at the world is through that prism. And especially if you are a black African immigrating to a Western country, it just as you were saying that she had a right to escape Jamal that she exercised by going home. And that's because in America, her race and ethnicity and national origin is so inescapable. So then you have a choice to make about how you're going to handle that status. And she first tries really hard to Americanize her English and fit in. And, you know, she's having her hair magicked in all the ways that black women sometimes do to make it look more like white people hair. And then she moves away from all of that. She lets her Nigerian accent come back. She starts braiding her hair. She has an afro for a time. And there's this way in which she's playing with the demands on her to become a chameleon and kind of pushing back at that and refusing, even as she starts this blog that's all about commentary on the different ways in which Americans think about race and class and all the loaded assumptions we make when we interact with people. So the big majority of the novel, I would say, the majority of the novel's concerns, at least in maybe its middle 300 pages, are about Ifemelu and her life in America once she has become something of a success. When she graduates from college, when she starts a blog, she starts accumulating extremely hot boyfriends. She becomes a real American success. And the basis of that success is this blog she creates, a blog that has, I would be willing to say, maybe the worst name for a blog I've ever 
heard in the history of <laughs> oh there must be a worst one out there i really there. like i like this was the name of this blog was one of the first things in this book that like took me aback and made me think does this author really know what she's talking about the name of the blog is race teeth or various observations about american blacks open parentheses those formerly known as negroes close parentheses by a non-american black yeah, I'll say that if that blog popped up on my uh, web browser, I would just close the tab. Yeah, that's a, that's a total closed tab <laughs> so title. So mean! It does not make she's... my RSS feed circa 2007. She is sharp and witty in her blog posts. I don't think she is. Oh, no! That's what I would like to talk about now in this part of the book. Do you think she's a bad blogger? I think she's a fine blogger, but I think as blogs go, this novel is not a good blog. What does that mean? <laughs> She's a good blogger. You liked her blog post, but the novel isn't a blog. I, I don't, don't get want three hundred pages of blog posts. About she wasn't. It wasn't three hundred pages. Oh, there yes, were like it was. a few along the way. No, because the whole novel turned into a series of blog posts about every character in the book. That's what drove. You me mean crazy even about when it. it's not written as a blog post, yes. it, be, it takes on. Okay. Yes, that All was right. my problem. Oh, okay. Is that there are long stretches of the book in which I felt like yes, we get these like blog posts, which are kind of funny blog posts that I could imagine people liking and you know, sharing on Facebook. They had great viral reach. But then I felt like there were long sequences in the novel where every boyfriend she has, every party she goes to, in fact, many of the parties that Obinze goes to are all meant to bring forth a certain character type so that then Adiche, as a writer, can hold forth on that character type for a moment, on the white girl who wants to get dreads in a hair braiding place, yeah. or on the accomplished black writer who has thoughts about what novels about race should be, or whatever. Just Every character just felt like another chance for someone to hold forth to me about how this character is typical of a certain type. And that started to like drive me crazy as I went further into this book. I don't think it drove me crazy, but I can definitely see what you mean there's a scene where she is at a party and she is talking with a um i want to say like a haitian woman who says something to the effect of you know race doesn't matter anymore and mm -hmm. then what follows is basically a mono a blog it's a blog post right about the race salience matters. of race yeah right is the haitian woman who says that once obama gets elected race will end in this country right I have conflicted feelings about my feelings about this section of the novel. Like, it is super easy for me as a white dude to say that this novel is just too much blogging about racial politics because Chimamanda Adichie is right that many American novels are very shy about race. And it is frequently a subject in conversation for many people and in literature that is completely elided or dealt with in euphemism. You know, there's that section where she talks about how when people don't want to say that something is racist, they want to say that it's racially charged. And it's true that those euphemisms exist, yet at the same time, I felt sometimes Chimamanda Idiche did not have a sense of how much conversations about race actually do permeate American society. And so this is what sort of drove me into like like a low-level rage about the attitude that this book takes towards its own attitude about race, which is in this same interview that I mentioned before with Parl Sagal. She says that she gets frustrated sometimes because she thinks that Americans read the book and don't understand that it's supposed to be funny. That she, when she was writing it, she says that she was laughing a lot. And what she says is, but I suppose race, when bluntly dealt with, does not blend well with that wonderful, famed American earnestness. And I just thought, I feel like this is a person who like ne has like never listened 
to Richard Pryor or never has never read James McBride or never listened to a single rap song or like has no sense that there are ways in which Americans talk about race in interesting and profound and in your face manner. And it's true that race is a difficult subject to talk about, but I don't think that it's invisible the way this novel seems to suggest in her public comments. She seems to suggest that she's like the first person ever to write about this. Well, that may be a little self-aggrandizing. But to stick up for this part of the book, she is being a social commentator and a satirist and an outsider observing the mores of the foreign land where she has found herself walking among the natives. And she's pointing out things. I don't think she's saying that race is invisible. I think she's saying we're acutely aware of it and really uncomfortable in how we talk about it. And there's this one scene where she's in a store and there's a black sales girl and a white sales girl. And she has to, or her friend, one of them has to say which it is who helped her. And the one obvious salient characteristic that is unmentionable is race. And so they end up with this very confusing, oh, she has glasses, she has brown hair. But this is true about both of them. I think that rung pretty true for me. I guess in agreement with your point, I would say that I've read subtler depictions of the kind of intellectual critiques in this book about race. So I was thinking about Zadie Smith's book on beauty, which is also set in an academic setting, and I think does a better job of making what might feel like more full, three-dimensional, subtler literature out of some of these same issues and considerations. I haven't read the book, but I will say that in this, characters do talk about race in oblique ways. But those characters, what bothered me is that they were, in some cases, like hyper two-dimensional. So on page 244, you have Kurt's mom. They're having, I think, brunch. And out of nowhere, Kurt's mom says, you know, I'm Republican. Our whole family is. We are very anti-welfare, but we did very much support civil rights, which is like, (laughs) you know, this is a situation where Kurt's mom, who is, is a white woman, clearly aware of race. I've been around a lot of old white Republicans in my life. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't be that obvious, right? No one would be reassuring that, you. No one would be that obvious. In fact, the only sort of old white Republicans who have ever like explicitly brought up race with me are people whom I've known for a very long time, and so they they sort of know where I'm coming from. They kind of want to talk about it explicitly, but I've never been in a situation around a large number of old white Republican strangers, which has happened a lot, and someone just said. Oh, you know, I support civil rights. Right. I'm down with black people, Jamel. <laughs> that's... But Jamel, are they trying to be colorblind? Is that what they're doing instead, maybe? or is I mean, right... that's a possibility. I mean, yeah, I think that, Jamel, you are pointing to the way that this book specifically frustrated me, which is that I loved many of the observations that the book made in scene, which I felt very realistic and well-observed. But then I felt that those observations were often sacrificed on the altar of the discussion that then needed to follow from them. So like, for example, in that scene you mentioned, Emily, on page 155 about the sales girl trying to explain without saying the black one, which one it was who helped them. That scene is funny and interesting and potent, but then the scene ends with a character literally saying out loud, this is America. You're supposed to pretend that you don't notice certain things. And so, right. like, every so then she like hits it gets, on the nose. Right. It gets underlined. And this is a novel of realism, right? It's a novel where we're supposed to recognize these people, but realism gets sacrificed, as in the scene that Jamel mentions, on the altar of making these observations. So there's that whole ridiculous sequence with Ifemelu and Kurt, 
where he's like, oh, I don't get why there has to be a magazine like Essence. And oh, then she takes him to the bookstore. <laughs> and we're supposed to believe that he sat there for half an hour while they paged through every single magazine and counted 2,000 white faces. Like, that is not a realistic thing that a couple would ever do. It just wouldn't happen. It instead is a blog post. Right. It's certainly the scene. case. It's certainly the case that people have obtuse reactions like that. People do say things like, yes, absolutely. Oh, that it's racist that black people have this magazine. Right. Absolutely. But in those circumstances, a simple – you do realize that every magazine has a white person on right. it would end the conversation. Right. Or right? Like, like, you're crazy. Shut <laughs> up. Like, anything. Like, yes. Can I say, though, that that scene came back to me recently when – I forget the name of this actress because I forget everyone's name. But, you know, gorgeous girl from 12 Years a Slave. The black on one? The Do you mean the black one? The black <laughs> actress, Yes, I mean Emily? the black one. Lupita Nyong'o? <laughs> really beautiful. Yes, thank yes. you. Her. Who has, who thought, has optioned this book, by the way. Really, that's great. Well, I thought, hey, check it out. Here's an antidote to this point that a DJ made. It's not like I've never thought about that before, but still, <laughs> it like stuck with me as this recent observation about this imbalance. I mean, I also think there's a problem with investing in this one stunning actress, you know. Sure, especially right. when Black she eventually forever, plays Nifa in this movie. I will say the Lupita adoration that I guess happened around the Oscars made me a little uncomfortable because it felt a little bit like compensation. Yeah, yeah, and it was was a little patronizing. Every magazine put her on the cover because then they could be like, oh, hey, guys, check it out. She's very beautiful, but people got like very superfluous with their compliments about her beauty, which is actually something that happens here yes. where she's with Kimberly's sister, whose name I forget. Who's who's, totally awful. Who is a caricature. (laughs) I think it's a caricature. I I can imagine someone behaving like that, but not to that degree. Mm Mm-hmm. But Aoife Maley makes the observation that, you know, they're always looking at black models in magazines and saying how stunning and beautiful they are. And Aoife Maley is like, that woman is not particularly attractive. Right. That's a totally ordinary looking person. Right. Right. Um, right. But you're right. saying she that just happens to be black. conscious. Which, it's funny because sometimes characters who I, I think are a bit caricatured will say things that, like, I've heard in real life, which made me, I'll say, a little more forgiving of it. Like, yeah. there are scenes and moments throughout the book that like rang very true to my experiences. Maybe not exactly, but you know, I, I can't I can't I literally cannot actually count the number of times I've been told that I'm a very articulate, you know, <laughs> a very articulate guy. And I don't think clean. Are you also clean? I've never what was been told the other that word clean. that Biden used for Obama? <laughs> right. I forget. Biden said Obama was a clean, articulate guy. Sure. Maybe he said clean shaven, clean cut anyway. I don't think he said actually clean, just to let Joe Biden it's a off clear that example hook. of reverse racism because I'm also <laughs> clean and articulate and no one says anything. No, neither. It's funny because I can see how someone could read those moments. And I'm thinking in particular of when I've never had this exact experience, but when I think Kurt and uh, Ethan Mailey were having sex and he's like, you be Foxy Brown. <laughs> like that kind of awkward attempt to compliment, but completely false flat moment. I've experienced a lot. I can see how that might come across as caricature when it actually is like probably pro- true. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah, I mean, that... and that, but I think that my problem with the book has less to do with whether individual moments feel true or not, right. although sometimes they don't, but with the fact that moment after moment is piled up for hundreds and hundreds of pages right. without a break for character development at times. You know, I felt that during all these sequences, what I wanted out of these sequences was Ifemelu and Obinze. But what I was getting for long stretches, just what felt like blog posts. That doesn't mean that I didn't like the book necessarily. It 
means that there were sections of the book that frustrated me because they felt like a mode mismatch. They felt like, I guess, peanut butter in my chocolate, you know, but not, uh, I guess, that I was declaring myself for the purposes of this novel, someone who, who just wanted peanut butter. Oh, and who knew that you were anti-peanut butter combined with chocolate? No, no, I actually am. That's why it's a terrible metaphor that I shouldn't have ever used. <laughs> Plus, the entire chocolate reference is like tacky and reference to black people. So I'm going to step oh, well. away. I'm going to step away from my metaphor. Before we step away from this topic, though, I have to say that I think part of the reason I'm resisting your critique, Dan, is that Adiche nails <laughs> she nails the idea of the special white friend. Oh, she has yeah. a, this is an actual blog post in which she talks about white people who get it and how helpful they are and how you should thank them, basically. And I have to say, I read this and thought that I have been auditioning for this role my entire life. Like, to the point <laughs> that before this podcast, I almost called a couple of black friends of mine and read this to them and asked them if they thought I qualified. Then that seemed too pathetic to do, so I didn't. But, you know, I think there is this way in which the most powerful social commentary in the book, even if she is hitting it on the nose at times a little too much, she really does have something to say about the relations of, you know, obviously black people and white people, but also how black immigrants are treated differently. You know, the narrative arc for the book is largely set in a hair salon where there are all these African immigrants from different countries who are judging each other. All of those gradations are laid out with a lot of acute observation. And that is no small feat, even if it's not always rising to the level of, you know, high realism in terms of literature. Yeah, I agree. And I really liked those scenes and I really liked what I thought was a very deft structural choice that she made, which was to begin with this notion of braiding and then to essentially create a braided novel, right? That's in right. which a number of stories are twirling around each other endlessly until they come together at the end. That's a great formalist choice for a novelist to make and she really pulls that off. You know, I feel like this could very easily have been a novel that felt messy. Because it's bouncing back and forth between different time spans and not necessarily in any particularly orderly fashion, but it never did. And I never felt like she was out of control of her material. Even if it sometimes got bigger or longer than I thought it necessarily needed to be, I always felt like it was going somewhere. And I really appreciated that about this book. It's a talent that many novelists don't have at all. And also, I don't know about you, I was turning the pages. I mean, there were maybe a couple of subsections where... I got slightly impatient, but mostly I was really hooked once I got into the book. One other thing that I would like to talk about before we close up is, can we talk about Obama in this book? I felt like... Yes, he emerges heroic. He emerges no? heroic, yes. So I thought that section was interesting but weird. And so, A, Ifemelu and her boyfriend, Blaine? Blaine. That's Professor a, Hunk. Professor Hunk, that's right. Blaine. I that's think a, I've met him. What does Ducky say about Blaine and Pretty in Pink? That's a major appliance. That's not a name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they're, like, drifting apart, but then basically, like, Obama brings them together for, like, the duration of the election. And there's even this, like, semi-creepy line where she says that when they make love, it's like Obama's in the room with them, which... Yeah, that was real weird. <laughs> yeah, someone needs to call the Secret Service on that one. But so... Michelle might not be so happy right. either. And there are a lot of really great fascinating observations about Obama and about sort of the spirit of that time in that first election when an entire universe of disparate people came together behind the hope that he represented. But was anyone else disappointed that then he completely disappeared? I don't even think we ever heard once after the election what she thought about Obama or what they thought about Obama or what people in Nigeria thought about Obama or whether she was disappointed in the administration or – like. It's So it seemed weird that it played such a huge role in her life and then fell completely out of it. 
Am I like nitpicking or is that did that strike anyone else? That did not strike me at all. I think the reason is that Obama feels like a prop in her relationship with Blaine. And you know that her relationship with Blaine is doomed and they have basically stitched it back together in their excitement in that campaign. And I guess the other thing is that I really remember that feeling of tremendous excitement in the campaign and the day after when Obama won, when like every black person on the street, every person, it just seemed so, you know, people were smiling. I live in such a blue state. So I felt like everyone around me was happy. It was like that in Virginia too. Yeah. It was like that everywhere. Yeah. Right. And then that diminished because of course it does. Life comes back and sets in and you have a real president, not this aspirational candidate. So maybe she didn't want to talk about the less uplifting, you know, weightiness of actually being in office. But mostly she was in Nigeria. And so I don't think the American president was on her mind in the same way. I sort of just assumed the Obama thing was partially a way for us to get through the Blaine relationship. Like it's established so early that it's kind of falling apart, that there needs to be something, some temporal factor to kind of explain why they're together for so long. Mm -hmm. And that that's the purpose Obama serves. And then once they break up, it, he no longer serves that purpose, and so he's gone. It just seems like a bummer to me. Like, I mean, if you're writing a novel about race in America, or at least where big chunks of it are about race in America, I feel like there's a lot more to explore about the aftermath of that election. And then also it makes me feel like, well, why did she need to stay with Blaine longer? Like, couldn't she have just been in America nine years or whatever? It, I mean, I guess it doesn't make that big of a difference, but it, just, it did feel like a dropped ball to me. In a book that didn't actually drop that many balls. Like I mean, it, I'll say that if there were more exploration of what Obama meant, it might have meant more blog posts. Yes, that's true. It would have been even more blog posts. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a conflicted problem. So to finish up, I'd love for us each to maybe just mention one little thing about the book that you particularly liked or that struck you. I will start. One of the things I liked about the Nigerian sections is I really loved the illustration of Nigerian English and how they would just occasionally at random end a sentence O, which I really liked. I probably can't pull that off in my own <laughs> personal speech, but it did also lead me to a great song that is a song that Ifame and Obinze listened to in the car on the way to a date. It's called Bracket by Yori Yori. You see the way all the things they flow. I'm surprised to see how they love you so. Girl, I suspect say them no, no. Say now you be the person where they make me flow. It's straight Nigerian pop, and it is not a particularly sophisticated or even necessarily great song, but the YouTube comments do reveal that there's basically a six-year period where you could not go to a wedding in Lagos without hearing this song. <laughs> it was like, I mean, it seems like it was like the electric slide of Lagos for some specific period of time, or the call me maybe of Lagos. The hey-ya. It was the hey-ya. Yeah, that's a great, it was the hey-ya of Lagos. And I really liked that a lot. Like, and it was one of the many details about Nigeria that I just really enjoyed learning about from this book in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. What about you, Emily? I really like the frank sexuality in the book. So there is a lot of discussion of weight. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but a real making room for larger women's bodies and for deciding that you're going to revel in that and that you don't have to be skinny if Amelu's body changes. And aside from that annoying passage where she doesn't want to talk to Obinze because she's losing weight, she's mostly at peace with that. And there's some great just like little details about things like sniffing underwear, just these random mm -hmm. things that felt to me like <laughs> was, we don't usually fun. talk about sex this way, but it's true. People do stuff like that. And I thought she did a really good job of writing about that. And that's hard. Yeah, I like that too. And I, and I liked even like that differentiation they made between what fat is in America and what fat is in Nigeria and how she is sort of one way she became a little 
American is that she got confused about that. Yes. What about you, Jamal? I like the character of DK, Ifamelu's cousin, mm-hmm. who is late in the book uh, attempts suicide. And I kind of wish we would have spent a bit more time with him because he was how he looked at the, I guess, the problems of trying to integrate two different identities without being centered in one. So, like, Ifamelu is Nigerian. DK is in all respects, Nigerian-American and just never, as a teenager, wasn't able to reconcile that, in part because his mother, Auntie Uju, was so intent on him being American. And so I, I really wish we would have gotten just more time with him. And on that same note, I liked all the observations by the Nigerian immigrants about American blacks. I, I sort of find that dynamic very fascinating, in, in part because there have been assorted times where people have confused me for being African and not African-American and black American. And sometimes I've run... After you opened your mouth or beforehand? After. No way. I've sometimes run with that just to see how people (laughs) react differently. And was it black Americans being confused about this or whites? Whites. Uh It happens all the time. (laughs) Is it just your glasses? I think it's my skin tone. I'm pretty dark skinned Mm -hmm. and I don't have a discernible accent due to many years in speech therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think I kind of seem vaguely exotic. I've gotten different reactions in conversations with people based on whether if they ask me if I'm African and I say yes and if I present myself as that way, like the interaction runs differently than when I'm just like, nah, I'm a black dude from Virginia. Mm -hmm. So what happens? Do you become more exciting and exotic or do people talk down to you or what? I think I become more exciting and exotic. Like Uh I was at an ideas festival type thing and a woman came up to me and asked me and she's like, where are you coming in from? Like Washington, D.C.? She says, uh, are you from Africa? And I was like, yeah, I'm from Nigeria. And then she brought over her friend. Like, hey, this guy (laughs) is over here. You know, he's from Nigeria. We should come talk to him. Which wouldn't have happened had I just said I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Yeah. That's all to say that I would have liked to just get more observations, I guess, more blog posts about um, the (laughs) view of American blacks, about DK, about sort of – those interactions. I did really like those sections of the book. I really loved that great blog post in the African Students Association where they refer to um, how they spend half their time complaining about what Americans say to them and half their time bitching about Africa, which they're allowed to do because it's like a complaining made of longing. Right. Yeah, I really like that section. It does have a lot of interesting things to say about that. And it talks, in fact, about if a Melu's ability to always figure out instantly whether someone was African or black American and that that was important to her and that when the few times she got it wrong, she got really flustered. So, but overall, you guys would recommend this book? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I would too. I mean, despite my issues with it, I think many of which have become, I'm sure, from a particular place of being a white guy reading a book where long sections about race and I, I'm sure. Yeah, you just keep apologizing for your lame right, right, right. (laughs) Well, no, you know, it's easy for me to become itchy with blog posts about race, but I think that you know, let's be honest, people. A lot of these are going to be news to people who aren't as progressive and amazing as me. So, (laughs) I mean, I will say that some of them are a bit like grad schooly, yeah, and that's that's annoying. Yeah, but on the other hand, grad school can sometimes be fun. So there's a there's a lot to learn and a lot to enjoy in this book, and a lot of really great characters and some. I think, like, really revelatory writing and plotting that I really enjoyed. So it's a de- And she makes recommend. people think, and this book has really stuck with me. Yeah, and I think it is for a lot of people. Like, I think that this book is 
I think both the ideas and the romance at the center of this book really stick for people in it. And so, for example, I think it's going to be a really potentially really great movie. With It's already basically been cast by the internet with not only Lupita Nyong'o, but then with Chiwetel Ejiofor. See, this is what happens whenever there are a bunch of very prominent black actors. They suddenly they end up in everything. Every role. Right. Hey, who should play James Bond? Hey, Idris Elba. That's actually a pretty good choice. I was but... just <laughs> thinking about him because I'm so in love with him. Well, I mean, he would make a great James Bond. And that is a rumor that Idris Elba would be extremely happy for you to spread as much as possible. Well, he could be Obinze, too, when he's done being James Bond. If Lupita is going to be Ifemelu, he is too old. Too tall, too. I guess he's also too true. tall. Yes, that's oh, right. Oh, come on. He's he supposed to be short and like a little bit stout. He's, he's supposed to basically look exactly like Jamel. Is what you Jamel's think the shortness <laughs> is going gonna to make it past the Hollywood filter? I don't think hey, so. Hey, Tom Cruise has had a career his entire life, Ugh. despite being three Yeah, foot if seven. he's your counterexample, you're in trouble. All right. So thank you, Jamel. Thank you, Emily, for joining me to uh, talk about Americana. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jamel. Uh, program note, our next audiobook club selection is Carl Ova Knausgaard's My Struggle, which will present more pronunciation challenges for everyone in the group. Uh, it is the six-volume, 3,600-page autobiographical epic that is taking the literary world by storm, but we are just going to read volume one because, Jesus Christ, we are not insane. But please, join us for volume one. Read it, listen to it, and then join us for our discussion, including, I hope, another new exciting member of our audiobook club rotation on July 11th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You will find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Please visit our Facebook page. You can leave a comment on this episode or any past episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which we certainly hope you will do if you've not done already. That helps other people discover the show when you subscribe. You can search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and while you're there, leave a comment. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.